I think I'd like to begin this morning in prayer. So would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Fathers, certainly as I approach this message, it is a, uh, it is a topic <laughs> that, is, that is so deep, that is so precious, that, Lord, quite honestly, I feel unworthy to even try to describe Lord, that song, I Need You, certainly speaks for me this morning. I need you, Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Lord, let the words that I say be pleasing to you. That, Lord, I could, as best human words can do this, describe the one whom we worship this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, what in your life has made you say, wow? Just, I mean, wow, that is awesome. Maybe for some of you it has been, I don't know, looking out at the beach. Some of you I can tell are beach people and, you know, the water. And you see all the way out to where the water touches the horizon. And, and that makes you say, wow. Or for some of you I know. Uh, it's the mountains. So you have beach people and you have mountain people. And uh, for some of you, it's the mountains, you know? And that kind of that wow feeling is, you know, you, know, you kind of go over that one hill on the road, and then after you go over that hill, boom, there's a silhouette of those magnificent giants just before you. And then as you go closer and closer, they just become more immense and more powerful, and it just gives you a wow feeling. Or it could be just, going out to look at the night sky, right? The Bible says even the heavens declare the glory of God and you look up and you see the vastness of space, all the stars that he has made and you just say, wow. You know, for me, quite honestly, there was a couple of things that really made me say, wow. One of them, all you men will understand, was when I got married and those doors opened up and there was my bride, Karen, there, and she looked like a princess, man. She was put on that wedding dress, and I can remember being at the altar, and I just said, wow, <laughs> man. And then the birth of my children, you know, when you see, when you see a child born, it just makes, it makes you want to say, wow, doesn't it? I don't even know how to describe it. I mean, there it is, 10 toes, 10 fingers, you know, precious, beautiful thing. I mean, it's really ugly and disgusting, but it's so beautiful to you, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and it just makes you say, wow. But can I just say that all of these, every single one of them, pale in comparison to the majesty and the awesomeness of God. There are no words that can adequately describe his splendor that he possesses. He alone exists in absolute perfection, in absolute beauty, without one flaw, not one flaw in his whole being. He is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. He is most holy, most pure, most glorious 
in all his attributes. When we dwell, when we dwell upon the God of creation, it should take our breath away. But today, what hurts my heart is that we see in the churches in America a loss of power. And I don't think because it's because God's gotten weaker. I think it's because we have become content with just a little of God. Just enough to satisfy us. Few, I believe, there are those hearts who are dissatisfied with mere religion. But they thirst for the one true God. The ones that the angels worship in heaven. Those who would cry out to God, I beseech thee, show me your glory. Worship in too many places has become about us. Do I like the songs? Is the temperature right? Is my chair comfortable? Is it the same chair I always sit in? Instead of focusing on the living bread who is able to feed our hungry souls. When you catch a glimpse, just a glimpse of the glory of God, you will never, ever, listen, you will never, ever be satisfied with the stale crumbs of religion ever again. To know Him is the greatest blessing for any of us. But too many are satisfied with their knowledge of God. Their hearts have grown cold. Their love has become stale. And it is time, church, it is time to throw off our dead complacency and ask God to kindle our hearts again, to be a flame for Him, to be passionate, to be passionate once again for Him. We should fall down before Him in reverential fear and awe. Let me ask you, have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? I have. I have. And I can testify that He is good. Now the fire in my heart is not near large enough like it should be, but that fire is real. And I can tell you, that the greatest thing beyond the birth of my children, beyond the majesty of the mountains, beyond the, the sky, is God himself. He is awesome. And my prayer today is that the flames would be kindled in every heart here this morning. That there would rise up this morning a group of believers who would say, Oh God, you are my God. Early, early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. In a dry and thirsty land. Let me ask you, are you tired? Are you tired of the dry and thirsty land? Then catch a glimpse of the glory of God. You need to know the one. The only one who can satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. It is this knowing him that will cause you to worship with a sense of awe like what we see in heaven. 
God does an amazing favor for us. <laughs> he opens up the windows of heaven and lets us take a peek inside to the worship that is occurring there. We observe the worship of the seraphim and the worship of the elders. And in fact, the passage that we're going to look at in Revelation chapter 4 actually happened once before. And this isn't in your notes, but I want to read it to you. It happened to the prophet Isaiah. And we see this duplicated in the passage we'll be spending the rest of the morning in, Revelation 4. But let me read Isaiah 6 to you. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. The house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And now look at this scene in Revelation chapter 4. It says, And the four living creatures, which we know now to be the seraphim, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created the heavenly worship scene now we see three types of beings present really four if you count the apostle john in this passage in revelation chapter four one is the creatures uh, which we know are the seraphim they're also the elders uh, many commentators believe that they are representative of the redeemed of the ages some believe that this is in fact uh, the, the church uh, because they have crowns and a throne, as Jesus told us, we would rule and reign with him. And so they would look at this as the church. But they are awestruck by the other one that is in the room, by this one person, the person of the Almighty. And in their worship, there is not the necessity of other entertainments to keep them occupied. Their hearts and minds are focused on the one person who has grabbed, demanded their attention. And that's because he's worth it. The focus of their genuine worship and the focus of our worship should be in an awesome God who sits on the throne to know the Godhead, three in one, to be transported into the realm of the awesome that is almost, almost too terrible for us to behold. The seraphim, as we read, must cover their faces and their feet just to abide, just to abide in the presence of the Almighty. Everything the seraphim and the elders say and do is directed to the one on the throne who is surrounded by, by wonder and grandeur and magnificent. Now let me ask you, is it the smoke 
Is it the lightning that we read about that's flashing, the thunder that's echoing around this throne room that causes this display of holy fear? Well, these may lend to, certainly, to the majesty of the scene. They are mere sideshows compared to the one who is foremost in this scene, and that is God Almighty, who is now seated on his throne. And when you allow yourself, when you allow yourself to come into the very holy of holies, I promise you, you can do nothing but fall down in awe-inspired worship. Let's take a look at this one who inspires this awestruck worship in the heavenlies. When we look into this health, heavenly realm of worship, we are going to see that the focus of genuine worship is an awesome God. And one of the first attributes, one of the first characteristics of him that makes him so awesome is his holiness. We hear the creatures, the seraphim, they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. Three times God is referred to as holy. And holiness is certainly an aspect of God with which we are familiar. Holiness means a purity, uh, a moral excellence, moral perfection that God certainly has. The Bible tells us that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God has never sinned. He cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt. He is holy. He is pure. He is perfect. But there's another aspect to his holiness that some may not be aware of. James Montgomery Boyce defines his holiness like this. He says, in its original and most fundamental sense, holy... It's not an ethical concept at all. Rather, it means that which is of the very nature of God and which therefore distinguishes him from everything else. It is what sets God apart from his creation. J.I. Packer says it like this. The basic idea which the word holy expresses is that of separation or separateness. When God is declared to be holy, the thought is of all that separates him and sets him apart and makes him different from his creatures. It's been described by some as that attribute of God which makes him holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy other. Holiness, the word holiness, describes his otherness from us. God is separate from you. He is distinctly different from you. You may say, but aren't I made in the image of God? Yes, you are. But you are the image and not the substance. (laughs) In God's grace, we were made in his image. But you are not God. His ways are high above your ways. We cannot come even close to fathom the God we serve. Our words, our mere words are an injustice really to his glory and to his splendor. We can try to describe it. But mere words fall short. And if he were to come into this worship center right now, in all his glory, at this very moment, we could do nothing but fall face down on the ground in fear. 
Bible says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yet unfortunately, it does seem that God has just become, become kind of common, you know, to the church. There's very little thought of the character, of his true character, of his, of his unbelievable majesty, the holy fear that we should feel. It seems to be missing. Many believers almost approach worship with him with a swagger instead of humility. Let me ask you, where is, where is, where is the sense of awe that we should feel when we come to worship this one, this God, this most holy one? Have we become satisfied? Just satisfied with living around the edges of the knowledge about God, but refuse to die to self and go into the Holy of Holies so we could truly know Him? Are we satisfied with the surface, but don't care about the deep things of God that take time in His presence to get to know Him? Satisfied with the shadow, but can't sacrifice ourselves enough to know the substance want the blessings of the morality of a life in religion, but delay in sinking our very souls into an intimate, all-consuming passion for the God of the universe. Now, I want you to understand something. I did not come here this morning to make you feel guilty. But I do want you to be dissatisfied. Dissatisfied with the crumbs of church activity, but instead of having a desire to feast upon the living bread. He is holy. He is not you. I am made in the image of God. Yes, you are. And what a display of God's grace that we are. But we are not God. He is holy other. His ways are far above our ways. We cannot even grasp his full holiness, his full glory, his complete majesty, We cannot grasp it in our finite minds. But even that which we can conceive should fill us with awe. Hermann Kramer, he's a German theologian back in the early 1900s, late 1800s, who resisted the liberal influences that were affecting Germany at that time, gave this definition for God's holiness. He says, God's holiness signifies his opposition to sin manifesting itself in atonement and redemption or in judgment. Holiness is the perfect purity of God, which in and for itself excludes all fellowship with the world and can only establish a relationship of free, electing love, whereby it asserts itself in the sanctification of God's people, their cleansing and redemption. There the purity of God manifesting itself in atonement and redemption and correspondingly in judgment. Now I know that was a mouthful. But let me give you the short explanation of what he was saying. The holiness of God is most clearly manifested in the cross. To see this, we need to remember, remember when we read Isaiah chapter 6, and there we have the prophet Isaiah, the seraphim crying, holy, holy, holy. And what was his response? Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. Compare this to what we see in Revelation. The Apostle John and the elders are are there. There is no woeful reaction in that scene. 
In fact, the woeful reaction is missing. And let me tell you why. That is because of the cross. To the redeemed. Holy, holy, holy is all aspiring because it manifests the holy love, the holy grace of a holy God that purified us from our sin so that we could be there. Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. When Christ was on the cross, when his blood was being shed, And when the wrath of God was being poured out upon him, which should have been poured out upon us, when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right there, right at that moment, we see the holiness of God. He will not wink at sin, but he has a holy hatred for sin, and sin must be punished. Even if it means his own son. And when that wrath was poured out upon Christ, what we saw was the holiness of God. Because my sin and your sin was placed upon him. So that now we can become holy. Isn't that amazing? We're holy because of what he's done. Look at the letters the apostles write to the churches. They never say, to the sinners at Ephesus, do they? Do they? No, they always say to the saints at Ephesus, to the saints at Corinth. Saints means holy ones. That's God, and God is holy, and that's what he's done for us. But one thing I do want you to know, that God is also a holy judge. And those who do not accept his offer of forgiveness in Jesus Christ will experience a holy wrath that is unending. In fact, after we leave Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5, which is this heavenly scene of worship, John will take us back to earth in Revelation. In chapter 6, what we're going to see is the seven-seal judgment, followed by the seven-trumpet judgment, followed by the seven-bowl judgment. And these judgments will manifest the holy wrath of God that is being poured out upon this earth and upon all mankind. See, the truth is, every person, every person on the face of this earth will experience God's holiness. Some will experience his holy mercy and some will experience his holy wrath. But the angels just don't talk about his holiness. The other thing they they cry out to him is the Lord God Almighty. Almighty. He's powerful. He is powerful. He is called Almighty by the seraphim. In Isaiah 46, I think it's probably best said in this chapter, verse 10, it says of God, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Which simply means his power is equal to his will. Which simply means anything that God wants to do, he does. (laughs) He has the power to do it. Now he only wants good, so good comes from him. But whatever he wants to do, he can do. Now look, we don't have that, do we? I mean, I might want to be the fastest runner on the earth. I just don't have the power to do it. Or I might want to be the smartest, most intelligent student on the face of the earth. I just, I don't have the power. And all y'all would say, amen. You do not have that. We got that. But the fact is, God is all powerful. Whatever he wills, he can do. Think about creation. God created the universe out of nothing. He spoke it. 
spoken into existence. Everything we see was created by his power. And Psalm 33, 9 says he spoke and it was done. It says that uh, the word of the Lord created the heavens. By the breath of his mouth, all the hosts were made. He controls everything in creation at all times. No one can help him and no one can hinder him. He is sovereign and absolutely competent and absolutely powerful to control it all. I tell you, if you want to do an interesting little Bible study, this is what you should do. Write down your notes, he is able. And do a little study on he is able. He, that means he has the power, right? Uh, I'll just give you a little glimpse. For example, Hebrews 2.18, he is able. He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save forever those who draw nigh to God. Ephesians 3, he is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. 2 Corinthians 9.8, he is able to make all grace abound to us. 2 Timothy 1.12, he is able to guard what I am trusted to him against that day. In Jude, verses 24 and 25, he is able to keep you from stumbling. He is able, he is able, he is able. Aren't you glad he is almighty? But you go back to Revelation 4 and the scene here, again, we can see as it is related to judgment because Revelation is surely about the judgment of God that is coming upon this earth. And the truth is, nations are, are, are trying to set themselves up against other nations and trying to get in a good position, forgetting about God and trying to get power. But God is going to judge this world. And I want you to know there is not a thing that anyone can do about it. In fact, every soul upon the face of this earth will be judged. And some of us might think, oh, it'll be okay in the end. Oh, certainly everything will turn out all right. No. It just doesn't turn out all right. The Holy God has given to you a wonderful gift of forgiveness and salvation through Jesus Christ. You can accept it or you can reject it. He's given you free will to do what you want. But the Almighty God says you will appear in judgment. If you don't believe that, just read Revelation 6 through Revelation chapter 19. And no one can stop him. But not only is he almighty, he is eternal. Now from the standpoint, this is so interesting. From the standpoint of the seraphim, uh, he is the God who was, is, and is to come. He is eternal. We kind of know what that means. Now there are three different types of beings, right? Uh, there's the, the being like a... Uh, like a cockroach, right? It has a certain starting time when that little scudder's born, right? And then there's a there's dying time, all right? Beginning point, ending point. And I have it on good assurance there are no cockroaches in heaven. So that's it for him, right? But then there are the beings who uh, have a beginning time but have no ending. That would be the angels. That would be you and me. Uh, we know our birth date, but we will go on and live forever, someplace, heaven or hell. But we will exist and live forever and ever and ever. There's only one being who has no beginning and has no end. So, in fact, you go back, I don't know, go back a thousand years, there's God. Go back a million years, 
there's God. Go back a trillion years, God is there. Now, I have a hard time understanding that because you know, uh, you know the word Google, what that means? That's a number, actually, one with a hundred zeros behind it. I don't know if you knew that. Go back a Google years, a Google. He's still there. Now, how is that possible? Well, I don't know. I just don't know. But I know this. God created time. So he's not bound by time. So when we talk about going back, going forward, it's all the same to him. July 4th, 1776 is just the same as September 18th, 2016. Did you know that? He looks at it because he's outside time. He's, he's, some people call him the eternal now <laughs> because he looks at that timeline. He's not contained in space. How big is God? That's a dumb question. He created space. God, and this is really hard to understand, he's outside the space-time continuum. In fact, he created the space-time continuum. And so it's hard for us to conceive of that, but it's awesome to think about this, that God has always existed. He has always been and he always will be. And he sees this very moment just like he saw it 10 billion years ago. God is eternal outside of space and time. But it's funny, when the elders worshipped him, you see the elders worshipped there at the end of those verses, they declare that God is worthy. Why? Because he is creator. He is creator. Now, I believe in creation. But I got to tell you, it's kind of amazing. If you go to uh, a mountain in South Dakota, on this mountain, there are these, these things that look like faces. And I'm telling you, one of them looks exactly like Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> one of them looks exactly like George Washington. One looks like Teddy Roosevelt. And the other one looks just exactly how I imagine Abraham Lincoln. And to me, it's amazing, after years of storm and erosion and volcanoes, that those four faces popped out of that mountain like that. <laughs> now, that's evolutionary thought for you right there. We would never say that those faces evolved out of that mountain, would we? And let, let me tell you, the complexity of a cell, one cell in your body makes that look like child's play. God should be worshipped because he is a creator. And when we see his creator, we should be, uh, his creation, we should be in awe of him. Louis Giglio, some of y'all know that person. He has a great video. Some of this I get from this video on the inspiring creation of God. There's a, a thing, uh, galaxy called the Whirlpool Galaxy. Uh, 31 million light years from here. That's, that's where it exists. Now, just so you kind of get an idea of what that is, uh, light actually you know, is a particle, a photon. It travels at a certain speed. Uh, we've, they've been able to clock it, uh, the speed of a, a photon, and it goes at 186,000 miles per second. So, a light year would be how far light could travel in a year. So all you got to do is do the math. 60 seconds in a minute, 60 seconds in an hour, 24 hours in a day, 365.25 days in a year. So you just multiply that times 60 times 60 times 24. And I've already done the math for you. It is 5.88 trillion miles a year. 
That's a light year, 5.8 trillion miles. So if you wanted to go to the Whirlpool Galaxy and you could go the speed of light, it would only take you 31 million years to get there. They had to come up with a different... See, this don't work. The, the rulers, you got to chunk them away. They, this don't work. When you're going in space, they had to make a whole new measurement called the light year. That one galaxy contains, get this, 300 billion stars. 300 billion. And it is one of hundreds of billions of other, other galaxies that God has made. The known universe, the known universe, is made up of 50 billion galaxies. In our galaxy, the Milky Way, there may be as many as 100 billion, these words that have come out of my lips, but 100 billion Earths, Earth-like planets. The sun in our solar system that we see every day or most days, it's 93 million miles away. It takes light eight minutes to get from here to there. In fact, if the sun exploded, uh, you'd have eight minutes to get your affairs in order. So uh, it is a million times the size of Earth. A million times the size of Earth. If our solar system, which is the planets right here that revolve around the sun, were a quarter, the Milky Way galaxy, the galaxy that we were in, would be the size of North America. Space is big. Space is huge. Now let me just show you something here. I brought some water here. You probably thought I was going to drink this. No. This is a teaspoon here. Also, creation is pretty small. Now, I'm going to pour this water in here. Whoop. Hope, hope's throat doesn't slip. The, uh, if you look in here, this is water. Y'all know the chemical compound of water, right? H2O. That's right. Uh, those are atoms. H2O is a molecule. There's a high, two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom. Right here in this spoon of water, there are more atoms in here then there are teaspoons of water in the Atlantic Ocean. Ow, that was refreshing. But isn't that amazing? In that teaspoon of water, there's more atoms than there are, than there are teaspoons of water in the Atlantic Ocean. Incredible how small God has made creation. But if we really want to be amazed at creation, we only need to look at ourselves. I mean, the fact is that... Uh, the human DNA is incredible. As you know how it all starts, one cell from mama, one cell from daddy. Each one has 23 chromosomes, right? And, uh, and those two cells come together. And right then when they come together, they form a DNA. has like a billion characteristics that are, come together and get drawn out and mapped out. But anyway, it starts from there. That one cell from the dad, that one cell from the mom. And can we hear it for the cell from the man? That dude has to work. I mean, he's competing against three million other guys, you know. And uh, that's why we're so competitive. It starts early, you know. But, the, uh, but when they come together, then that DNA is replicated in every single cell in your body. Is replicated. Every bit of those instructions in every cell of your body. 75 trillion cells in your body. Enough DNA put together in all those cells... To go to the 
the moon and back 175,000 times. From the sun to Pluto, 17 times. Just your DNA. And by the way, while I've been saying that, 50,000 cells of your body have just died and been replaced. And you wonder why you're so tired. God's creation is amazing. After five months, the baby in the womb, a million optic nerve endings left your brain and matched up perfectly. And they had to. With the optic nerves of your eye, they matched up. And when they perfectly matched, at that instant you had sight. But you couldn't see yet because a piece of skin covered your eye. But six months, six months, a little cutting device suddenly appeared and cut perfectly that thin piece of skin. Our God is an awesome God. When we look at creation, when we look at his eternity, when we look at his power, we look at his holiness, what, what should our response be? Well, Isaiah's response was, woe is me, I am undone. But look at the response of the elders. As they saw this one who was seated on the throne in all his majesty and all his grandeur, the first thing you notice is that they fall down. He is seated, so the indication is that they fall all the way down, prostrate on the ground, in complete surrender to God. They recognize that he is king of kings, and they are not. They get off their thrones. That would be an amazing step for all of us if we just get off our thrones and fall down before the one who deserves to be seated on the throne. Too many Christians and church members will never leave their throne and fall down before him. But it's a time that we fall down. We need to surrender. Surrender completely to him, his will, whatever it may be. To surrender your will to his is the proper response to a holy, majestic, powerful, eternal God. But not only did they completely surrender, but there was a complete abandonment to him. Do you notice what they did? Even as they threw, threw themselves prostrate on the ground, they threw their crowns before his throne. I mean, really, what do they have that was not given to them? In fact, before God created man, he created things for them to enjoy. It is when those things for them to enjoy took the place of God that problems happened. But here, they're holding on to nothing. They're not holding on to their thrones. They're not holding on to their crowns. But no, they're completely abandoning themselves to God. They are giving all that they have. They are making a choice that in reality, in fact, I want nothing but God. He is enough for me. Let the average man be put to proof on the question of who is above and his true position will be exposed. Let him be forced. Let the person be forced into making a choice between God and money. Between God and self. Between God and human love. And God will take second place every time. Those other things will be exalted above. However anyone may protest, the proof is in the choices that they make day in and day out. Will you cast aside your things in complete abandonment to him? Will you do that? This is the blessedness 
of possessing nothing. They have their crowns, their throne, they're all cast aside. The truth is, there is nothing good or joyous or lovely that Jesus is not to his servants who will abandon all for him. He will become your peace, your joy, your righteousness when you abandon all for him. And finally, we see the complete devotion. The complete devotion. The elders, they're not singing of their accomplishments, are they? No, they're singing of the one who is seated on the throne. They don't point to their work, to their record or works of greatness. No, but they point to God. It is a true statement that we brag on those we love, don't we? I mean, I want, I always, I want to brag on my wife. I want to brag on my kids. I, I don't know if it, anyone ever said anything negative about your kids or your, you know, it kind of hurts, don't it? I mean, because you, you want to brag on them. You want everyone to think they're great. Are you bragging on God? Do you think he's great? Do you brag more about Gamecocks than you do about God Almighty? Well, maybe that's not a good example. We should brag on something else. But do you brag on other things besides bragging on God? He should be the one that has all your passions and desires. He should be the one you brag on. That's praise. That's devotion. You're praising the one whom you love the most. He is ultimate in your eyes. More than wife. More than children. And we should brag on him. They are bragging on God because he is worthy. In fact, if they did not, I believe, the stars and the planets would cry out because he must be praised because he is worthy. He is an awesome God. Oh, that you would catch a glimpse of his glory. Oh, that the awe of him would fill your heart till you could hardly stand it. That you would come to know the one true God that you would not allow yourself to be distracted by the things of this earth which are temporary which don't even satisfy he's the only one who satisfies right now are you desperate right now are you dry he's the one that can satisfy you he's the one that can nourish your soul But you've got to turn to him. You've got to abandon yourself to him. You've got to surrender to him. If everyone at this moment, just close your eyes and you wouldn't bow your heads. I just believe that in a crowd this size that there are some here who don't know God at all. They know about him. They just don't know him at all. And if you don't know him, in fact, if uh, you have not really ever called out to God for the forgiveness of your sins through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, if you've not turned from your sin and rebellion against God and confessed Jesus as King and Savior and Lord, then I'll be honest with you, you do have a reason to be afraid today. We don't know that day will come 
when we'll be in front of a holy judge. There'll be no stopping it. There'll be no more hope at that point. This morning, I want you to understand there is hope. There's hope. And you can turn from the from the, the wickedness of the sin in your life. You can turn from the dryness of a life that's lived for self. And you can turn completely to the glorious, majestic, holy God. And he will receive you. If that's your desire, that's your wish this morning, then I want you simply to pray this prayer with me. Pray these words from your heart to God. Don't just repeat them. But let this be the cry of your heart. Heavenly Father, God, I admit that I have blown it. I've lived for me. God, I've sinned. God, I ask you to forgive me of every sin. I thank you that your wrath was poured upon Jesus at the cross. That he died for my sins. And I believe he rose again. And this morning, oh God, I am turning, turning away from sin. And Lord, I'm falling down in complete surrender to you. I come with open hands. God, I abandon all to you. And Lord, I ask you to save my soul. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, I want you to let us know on that communication card, please. That is the most important decision a person can make. But I want to pray for the rest of us too. You see, I, I know this. I know there are some here whose hearts were stirred by the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. And right now you're saying in your heart, enough. Enough of just pure, stale, dried out religion. I want the living one. I want the one who can feed my soul. I want to surrender to him. I want to know him. And particularly for you this morning. That's your heart's desire. I want you to join me in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, God, you are so holy and great and majestic. Forgive us, Lord, where... God, where we have taken you for granted, we just lived our lives without a thought for you. And Lord, our hearts and souls are dry because of that. And we need you. And Lord, this morning we come to you in complete surrender. Complete abandonment. God, nothing we have is ours. It is all yours. We give you our things. We give you our loves. We give you our life. 
we lay it all down on the altar this morning. And God, we ask you to fill us with yourself. Draw us into your presence. Oh, that we may see the one, the holy one, the majestic one, seated on his throne and be changed forever. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.